0: How to Play, episode 15, Kalis. Hello everybody and welcome to the How to Play podcast. This is episode 15 and today we're going to talk about Kalis. This is your host, Ryan Stern, Coming to you from western New York, this episode was recorded on May 1st, 2010. If you're new to the show, I'm glad you found us. How to Play is a podcast about learning and teaching games. In this podcast, I'm going to give an explanation of Kalos, just as if I was sitting across the table from you and we're about to play the game. This podcast is intended for use in learning how to play a game by yourself or with a group, or to serve as a model on how to explain the rules of this game and others. If you like the show, we've got all sorts of other great games. My website is www.howtoplaypodcast.com or catch up with us on the guild at Board Game Geek. Our guild number is 746. All right, so let's get to talking about Kalis. Kalis was designed by William Attia. This game plays with two to five players. I recommend playing it with three or four. Now, one of the reasons I was dying to do this episode is that I think that Kalis is a much misunderstood game It gets a lot of unfair criticism heaped upon it. A lot of people spouting off cruel and untrue things about this masterpiece of a game. So let's start off with debunking some myths, shall we? We're going to start today's episode with a segment called Lies People Have Told You About the Game Kalos. Lie number one. Kalos is not fun. Poppycock! People who don't think Kalos is fun... I think for one of two reasons, or maybe both of those reasons. The first reason is that Kalos may not be the type of game that suits their particular game taste. Now Kalos is a game for people who really like to dig into a game with a deep strategic learning curve. It's a game that requires a lot of planes to be successful. It's a game for people who like Euro games. Fans of American-style games should really steer clear. But for fans of Euro games, especially worker placement games, this is the ultimate game. The second reason I think people claim Kalis is not fun is that because it's a hard game to pick up when you're first learning it. The rulebook is especially brutal, and a group of all new players trying to figure out everything that's going on will have a really hard time, particularly with no direction as far as strategy. It's a lot like in Puerto Rico. There's all these buildings that you have to choose which one to buy from. And if you have no sort of direction in what to pick, it could seem like a total crapshoot. And I can see players getting very frustrated. And the game for sure would drag on for far too long and probably be a painful experience for everyone. But with fans of the Euro game genre, with a quality game explanation like one might find in a quality podcast such as this, Kalis is a lot of fun. Lie. Number 2. Kalis takes too long to play. Our game took over three hours. Balderdash! Well, probably the above players didn't have a clear understanding of what was happening. Also, you could have been playing with the full complement of five players, which especially for your first games is not recommended. Your first learning game of Kalis will take longer, but the game will definitely speed up with experience. Kalis typically lasts about 30 minutes per player, which brings it to 90 minutes to 120 minutes with a 3 or 4 player game, and even quicker with really experienced players. Lie number three. Don't get Kaless because it has been replaced by other better worker-placer games, like Pillars of the Earth, Stone Age, Agricola, or Kalis Magna Carta. Mumbo Jumbo! Saying that those other games replaced Kalis is something like saying that Checkers has now replaced Chess and no one should ever play Chess again. Now those other games are pretty good games, but Kalus is a masterpiece. It's the king of worker placement games. Kalus does what all those other games do better, and in most cases, it did it first. Kalus has no luck, quick, rapid-fire strategic decisions, tension, Intense player interaction, deep strategic and tactical play, multiple paths to victory, and a learning game that can last you 1,000 games or more. 1,000 games? Yes, 1,000 games. Which leads me to lie number four. Lie number four. Kalis is not replayable. It's just the same thing over and over again. Claptrap! I have played Kalis more than any other game I own. I've played it close to 200 times. I know players who have played it over a thousand times. I'm not exaggerating, actually a thousand times. I talked to him and I asked him, don't you ever get tired of this game? And he said, never. Every game is a little bit different. Every game I learn something new. Now in Agricola, you get these 14 cards and that changes the game every time, right? Well, all right, yeah, that's kind of neat. It's kind of fun to see how the different cards work together. But the only problem with this is that with strong players, players who are dealt stronger cards or combinations of cards will have a significant edge over players who do not. And the cards in Agricola are pretty wildly unbalanced. What makes Kalis different every time? It's simply each player's strategies and approaches to the game from turn to turn. That's it, and it's enough. Light number five. Whoever has played this game the most always wins. Yeah, alright, that probably is true. But I would change that and say whoever has played the game the best most always wins. And often that's the person who's played the game the most. But to me this is positive thing. It's a testament to the learning curve of this game and its lack of room for errors. Though I can see how for some people this can really be a negative. And definitely in some situations, this makes Kalis not the game to bring out. Kalis is the antithesis of a gateway game. You don't want to use this game to introduce new gamers. But on the other side, if you want a game that you can really get competitive with and practice and get better and better, this is the game for you. I mean, come on guys, let's man up. Or woman up. I don't want to offend my female listenership. Hello, Michelle. Michelle's my neighbor. She... She listens if I mow her lawn. But let's go. Don't coward out. Don't complain because somebody beat you because they've played the game more than you. Get better at yourself. Practice. Sink your teeth into it. Kalis allows you to do this. There's no random cards to give you an advantage. No rolling dice for victory points. There's nothing to hide your bad play behind. If you play well, you will probably win. And if you lose, you can probably think back on the game and know at least a few mistakes or decisions that you made that caused you to lose. So as you can see, I think that this game gets a lot of flack from people who struggled through the rule book, which is bad, admittedly, or maybe played it once in a slow learning game where people didn't really know what they were doing. Though when you play Kalis with a table of players who all understand the various strategies in the game and are all playing at a high level, This is a playing experience that's hard to match with many other games. I hope that this episode can get you interested in Kalos, and get you to this high level of play much quicker. Kalos is a beautiful game. I hope if you've never played the game before that you'll consider learning this game with me now and either picking up a copy or trying it online or if you've played it once or twice and didn't really care for it, why don't you give it a second chance? Listen to this, see if it can reinforce what you knew about the game, and give the old girl one more go. In fact, to encourage more playings of this game, with the powers invested in me as a gaming podcaster, I will officially declare a international holiday. I declare June 6th, 2010. That's right. 6 2010 International Kalis Celebration Day. A calibration. And I invite you on that day or on that weekend to play Kalis. Join me online for a game or run it with your friends. Let's see how many people simultaneously we can get to play this great game. I'm completely serious about this. Let's. I'm going to have a petition on the guild that you vow to play the game Kalos on June sixth, two 2010. Maybe we can get all sorts of people online to play the game or we can just play on the weekend, play the game of Kalos. Let's see if we can get 100 or more people To share the Kalus goodness all across this great world of ours, you know. Everybody has their own causes. Some people, you know, try to save the whales. Some people try to, you know, fight global warming. For me, it's board games. If I can spread more board game love around the world, especially with a great game like Kalus, all right. Maybe it's not gonna uh, save people's lives, but maybe it's deeper than that. It's gonna feed their soul. They're gonna be filled with the Caleb's goodness inside, and that's really just priceless. June sixth, twenty ten. A Kalus celebration. A calibration. Catch Kalis Fever. June sixth, two thousand ten. Spread the word. Tell your friends. Nobody's gonna want to be left out. Well, maybe some people might want to be left out. And that gets us to our complexity rating. Complexity rating. Kalus is a double black diamond. This is not a game you can just sit down with, pull off the shelf, play once, and figure it all out. You really need a group of competitive gamers who are interested in investing several plays and willing to dig into this game to truly get it and get the full experience of the exciting game that is Kalos. It takes one or two games to really get the big picture of what is happening in this game, and it will probably take at least five to ten games to get any good at the game. This would be a perfect game of the month for your game club if you had that. Or you could just bring it out for several weeks at your game club. It's another good game if you just want to dig into the game online and see how good you can get. There's a great interface program for playing this game in real time online, which I'll talk about in a little bit. Kalos is not a game for everyone. It's not a game for casual gamers or non-gamers. People who openly dislike Euro games, or people who shun the idea of playing the same game twice. If you play it just once and don't go back to it, you probably won't get much out of Kalos. But with repeated plays by the same group, Kalos just gets better and better. I hope you'll consider investing your time in multiple plays of Kalos. Few games are more deserving of repeated play than this one. Alright, I gotta get off my Kalos soapbox so we can get to the rules, and so that you can learn how to play, or how to teach, Here's the structure for the show for new listeners. We'll start with a hook, which is an introduction. Then we'll get into the meat of the rules. The third part is the hamster, which is very important in Kalus. It will give you some basic strategy in order to pull it all together. And then finally we'll have our footnotes and musings. In the footnotes I'll have some of the smaller rules In Musings, I'll talk about various topics, including diplomacy, the different player counts of Kalis, and for getting into this game and other games on the great German gaming website, Brettspielwelt. So let's get to it now. As always, I recommend having the game in front of you, or the rulebook, or at least access to the web so that you can see the board and the different buildings in the game to fully understand this game. Alright, you know what time it is, HTP fans. Let's get to the hook! Part 1. The Hook. What the game is about. In this game, you are a master builder in medieval France, employed by King Philip to develop the lowly village of Calus into a mighty city. In each turn, we will take turns placing our workers into different buildings, and we do that in order to get resources, money, and to build various buildings. This game takes place over three rounds of building the dungeon, the walls, and the towers of the castle. Your goal for this game is to score victory points. You do that by placing your workers to collect as many resource cubes as possible, and then convert those resources into points by building buildings in the city and for donating resources to build sections of the castle. When the tower round is complete, whoever has the most points will be the victor. Part 2. The Meat. How to play the game. So, keep in mind, the main objective of this game is to score points by placing your workers. You have to do this in steps. First, you'll want to place your workers into buildings that give you resource cubes. And then, you'll want to place your workers into buildings that let you build more buildings, which score you points. Or, you'll want to put your workers into that castle section to donate some of your resources to help to build the castle. you also get points for doing that. So those are your three overall goals. Collect resources, to build buildings for points, or to donate cubes to the castle for points. Keep those things in mind as we learn the game. Let's start with the overall structure. The structure of the game is that there are three major rounds to the game which are represented by the three parts of the castle that you will be helping to build. If you look at the castle, which is in the upper left corner of the board, you'll see three separate segments of rectangles. Underneath those segments, you'll see a yellow tent, which is the dungeon symbol, orange parapets, which is the walls round symbol, and a red tower circle, which is the tower round symbol. If you look down the road, you'll also see those three symbols, The timekeeper of the game is the Bailiff. The Bailiff is the chunky white cylinder who's going to walk down the road on the board. And when he gets to the spots on the road marked with the round symbol, a round will end. A round can also end if a round's particular segments get filled up. You'll notice the dungeon only has six empty rectangles there for donations into the castle. If those all get filled up before that chunky guy gets to the dungeon symbol, the round will end. The dungeon has six spaces for donating in the castle, the walls round has 10, and the tower round has 14, because later in the game players will be able to get more resources more quickly and have more to donate. So this game's played in a series of turns, and each turn that chunky bailiff piece will move forward either one or two spaces. And rounds will end when either the bailiff gets to those round symbols or that round segment fills up. When he gets to that red tower symbol or the tower segment below the castle fills up, the game is over. So that is the big picture. The game is played in three large rounds and each round ends when the bailiff approaches that symbol or if that part of the castle is built, which is represented by having all of those rectangles by the castle fill up. Each of these rounds is made up of three to six turns. And the heart of the turn is the worker placement phase. Because the main way you'll be accomplishing those goals that we talked about, acquiring resources, building buildings, and donating to the castle, are through wise placement of your workers. In each turn you will have up to six worker pieces. The worker pieces are little wooden cylinders in your player color. At the beginning of the game, there are 15 different buildings for which to place your workers. Whoever goes first will choose one of the spaces on the board with which to place their worker. He'll choose carefully the action he wants to take, ideally the spot that he thinks most benefits him. He places the worker in that building, and in most cases this is going to block other players now from going into that building. Now when you place a worker in that building, you're saying that you want to take that action. You don't actually get to take the action yet, because it's possible that you may not get to do that action. More on this later. So then it's the next player's turn to play a worker to state their claim on the action that they want to take. And they'll have 14 different buildings with which to choose from. They will select a building. Players will continue to select a building with their workers in turn order. What do the buildings do? I'll get into the specific buildings in just a bit. But most buildings, in general, give you more resources or money, or let you buy more buildings, or give you a special ability. So players will continue in turn order playing those workers one at a time. Playing workers has a cost. Every time you place a worker it costs you one money. They're called deniers. Denier? Denier. denier. Let's just call them money. It's easy to forget to pay one money when you place your worker. So a good way to remember this is to place your wooden cylinders each on top of one of your money coins. This will help you to remember to pay that money. On the first turn, this may not seem like such a big deal because you start with a decent amount of money. But in future turns, it's very likely that you will run out of money. And if you have no money, you may no longer place any more workers, which is bad for you. And one of the reasons that money is a very important resource in the game. Try never to run out of money. That's harder than it sounds. So, players will continue playing workers until one player either decides there's nowhere else that they want to go or they're out of money, like I just described. They'll choose to pass and end their placing of workers. They do this by placing a wooden flat disc onto the passing bridge. They will now not be allowed to play workers until the next turn. Since they're the first one to pass, they're going to place their disc on the number one. Now, this has two effects. You'll notice that there is a one money symbol underneath the number one. That means that the first person to pass, a lot of times they don't want to, sort of gets a booby prize of one money, which can be helpful if they're broke. But there's also a big disadvantage to passing first, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. The other effect is that you'll notice that the next lowest visible circle on that passing bridge is now two. And that determines the cost of playing more workers. Instead of you having to pay one money per worker, now since a player has passed, you have to pay two. And if another player chooses to pass, they'll place their passing disc on the two spot on the bridge, and now it will cost three money to play a worker for any remaining players and so on. And this is going to continue until all players pass. Note that only the first player to pass gets any money for passing. Okay, once everyone has passed, it is time to activate the buildings and take the actions. In Kalis, it's very important that these actions are resolved in order as they are pictured on the board. So you start with your finger on the castle and trace it down the road, and those are the order in which the actions happen. First are the six special buildings pictured on the board closest to the castle. You resolve those one at a time in order from the castle down to the bottom of the board. You resolve them by removing your piece back to your supply and carrying out the action. For example, at the second building, the trading post, if you had your dude there, you'd simply take three money and bring your guy back to your supply. You do those six buildings closest to the castle, and then you get to the passing bridge. The passing bridge? Yes, the passing bridge. <laughs> Here's where things get interesting, and it's one of the things that really makes Kalos the king of worker placement games. Alright, remember when I said when you place a worker on the building, you want to take those actions, but you may not get to. Here's where this comes in. There are six standard pink buildings placed on the board in random at the beginning of the game. On the last of these six buildings are two white tokens, a fat guy and a skinny guy. The fat guy we've already talked about, he's the bailiff, and he's the timekeeper of the game. Every turn, he moves forward one or two spaces, and he'll mark the end of all three rounds of the game, and the end of the game. But that skinny man, he's evil. His name is the Provost. (laughs) The Provost, or this little skinny white disc, has the ability to prevent actions from happening because only the buildings up to him on the road will function. If you've placed a worker further down the road, then the provost ends up, after he has finished moving, your worker will be wasted and not function. At this stage, when we get to the passing bridge, each player gets the opportunity to move the provost either forward or backward up to three spaces. This is done in the order on the passing bridge, meaning the first player to pass has to go first. And they decide whether they want to pay between zero and three money to move the provost. Now obviously, if he has workers on buildings ahead of that provost, he's going to want to move him forward. Or if he doesn't have any workers anywhere near that provost, he might want to move him backwards to prevent other players from getting to take their actions. Or many times it's a good idea if you don't care that much, or if you have to go first, you don't really have a lot of control anyway of where he's going to end up. Sometimes it's good to save your money and not move him at all. This is where it's a disadvantage to pass first, as you have to make your decision first on where you want to move that provost. Regardless, that after that player has moved him, or elected not to move him, and say pass, he removes his passing disc from the board, from that passing bridge, and then the next player, the second player to pass, will make his decision on if and where to move that provost. Until you get to the final player on that passing bridge, which is really a powerful position, because you get the final say on where that provost will finally end up. You probably had to spend extra money to get in that position, and hopefully you still have money left over to move it if necessary. But if you spend all that money and have no money left, you're not going to be able to move it, and being in that position won't do you any good. Because moving the provost costs one money per space to move. This is another reason you need to remember to try to never go broke in this game. Money is power. After the provost is settled, you can resolve the rest of the buildings one at a time. In the order that they go down the road. And this is important because you may get the resource cube in a first building to help you build a building in the second building where you have a worker. And if those were flipped around, you wouldn't be able to, for example, get the wood for that building that you wanted to buy. And you resolve all the buildings just like we talked about. You take your worker off and perform the action. And you do that all the way up to the square that the provost is on. After all the workers in the city there have been taken off, there's one more place where workers could be. And that's in the castle. Players will place a worker in the castle when they want to donate resources to the castle. And you want to do this because it gives you victory points. Now unlike the regular buildings, there's enough spaces for all the players to go to the castle if they want to. But they are ordered. The first person who goes there gets to go in the number one spot. If someone else were to go there, they would have to go in the number two spot. Of course, the castle action cannot be prevented by the provost. The castle action always happens at the end of each of those turns, so keep that in mind. You're going to get to donate after you get all those resources from the buildings from that turn. To resolve the castle action, each player in the castle order, the person who went there first, who's in the number one spot, decides how many batches of resources that they want to donate to the castle. What's a batch? A batch is considered three different resources, one of which is food. What kind of resources are in this game? Well, there's five different kinds of resource cubes in the game. Food are pink cubes. Wood are brown cubes. Stone is gray cubes. Cloth is the dark blue, or it could be purple in some of the really early versions. And gold is yellow cubes. So again, a batch is three different resources, one of which is food. And this is represented on the board. You'll see a stack of three cubes, one pink and two white, with a not equal sign, meaning they all have to be different. So a common batch would be a food, a wood, stone. Or a player might be in the castle and decide to donate two batches they would pay two food, two wood, and maybe one stone and one cloth. For each batch of resources I donate, I get to take one of my little wooden colored houses and place them in that first grouping of six spaces, which represents the building of the dungeon. And when those six squares for the dungeon are all filled, that means that the dungeon is complete. Or the bailiff will get to that certain spot on the road and decide, all right, we're done building the dungeon, we're moving on to the walls. For donating batches, you get victory points. The number that you get depends on which round that you're in. But for the first round, the dungeon round, you get five victory points for each batch that you donate. The next round, it's four per. The next round, it's three per. Because resources are a little easier to get, you get less victory points. So after I finish deciding how many batches to donate, the other players will all decide. Finally, the king grants his favor. After all players have donated, the player who donated the most batches gets a favor. If there's a tie, if I donated two and another person donated two, the player who donated their batches first, which is why it's an advantage to be the first to go in the castle, you'll win the tie, and you will get a favor. I'll talk more about favors a bit later. If you go to the castle and cannot or choose not to donate a batch to the castle, for example, maybe you got hosed by the provost and didn't get enough resources, then you would get a penalty. If you go into that castle space and do not, you lose two victory points. You can, of course, choose not to go into that castle area, and there's no penalty for doing that. It's very possible that in around no players will choose to go to the castle, and in this case you would just skip that step. Though usually at least someone is going to try to sneak in there to get that easy favor. After that, it's the end of the turn. We need to mark the passing of the turn by moving the bailiff. The bailiff will move one or two spots, and that depends on where the provost is. If the provost is behind or on the same space as the bailiff, the bailiff only goes one spot. But if the provost is ahead of the bailiff, which can happen because people are going to be moving that guy all around, the bailiff will move ahead two spots, speeding up the pace of the game. After the bailiff has moved, wherever that provost is at, he goes on top of the bailiff because he likes to stay with that chunky bailiff guy. They're friends, at least until you get to that passing bridge. Then you check to see if the end of the round has been reached, and that would be with that bailiff got to that round symbol, or if the dungeon, all six of those sections, were complete. If the round is over, you do the end of the round scoring. Like I said, there's usually about three to six turns in each round. If not, all players should have all of their workers back, with one minor exception, with one of those special buildings. But other than that, all players should have their workers back and be ready to start another turn. Okay, so let's summarize and look back at the structure of the game. The game is made up of three rounds. Dungeon round, walls round, and the tower round. The rounds are marked by finishing a full section of the castle or by the bailiff reaching the round symbol on the board. Those rounds are played in a series of turns, and the main mechanic of a turn is taking turns playing workers on buildings and then resolving those actions. And now that you know those basics, let's look at it more technically. Here are the seven phases of the turn Phase one collect income. Every player is going to get two money. Now later in the game, you may be able to increase your income with some special buildings. Phase two, worker placement. Players will take turns paying one money for each worker that they play. Until somebody passes, they're going to get an extra money for passing first. Now, of course, workers cost two to play, and the players will continue like that until everyone passes. Phase three, resolve the special buildings. These are the six buildings before the bridge. You'd resolve those. Phase four, the passing bridge. Should I play it again? No, I, I think the jokes weren't thin. I, I think I should just move. My finger slipped. Phase five, activate all those other buildings in order down the road to the piece that the provost is sitting on. Phase six, players in the castle decide how many batches to build. The person who donates the most gets a bonus favor. If someone does zero, they get penalized. Phase seven, move the bailiff one or two spots. The provost always goes on top of the bailiff. You check to see if the round is ended, and you repeat with people getting paid. So now you know the basic mechanics of the game, you really have to know about the Calus buildings. You need to know the basics of the buildings for two major reasons. First of all, they represent all the different choices for where you can play your workers, and you're going to want to choose wisely. you also hopefully be building some of those buildings, and you're going to need to decide which of those buildings that you want to buy. First, look at the building tiles. Let's see how to read them. Underneath the picture of each building is some sort of icon of what that building gets you whenever a worker resolves on that building. For example, the quarry gives you one stone cube when that building resolves. The forest can give you one wood cube or one food cube, which you get to choose when the building resolves. That's, of course, what that slash means. Of course, if the forest is further down the road than the provost after he has finished moving, well, then you're going to be out of luck. In the upper left corner of the building tile, you will see the cubes that are required to build that building. In the upper right corner, you'll see a red shield with a number on it. The red shield, whenever you see that icon, means victory points. So the number in that shield tells you how many victory points you immediately score when you build that building. Now, let's talk about all the different colors of buildings, how you can build them, and some of their basic functions. First, there are those buildings printed on the board. There's six before that passing bridge. The nice advantage of those buildings is that you know that those are immune to the provost. The provost can't cross that bridge. Next, there are spots for the six starter buildings, which are pink. Those buildings are randomly mixed up and placed on the board to start the game. Many of these are nice basic buildings that maybe give you one resource cube, and there's a couple other special ones. The provost and the bailiff is going to start the game on the sixth of these buildings. So having these starter buildings mixed up makes the start of each game a little bit different as the buildings that are placed in the first and second position are relatively safe bets and those placed, of course, in the fifth and sixth position are more risky in those early turns. And it gives each early game of Kalis a little bit different character. After those six pink buildings, there are two more buildings printed on the board. And after that are a lot of empty squares which are the places that you're going to put future buildings that you will buy. Like I said, many of the buildings simply give you cubes when resolved. But the other very important function of buildings is the specific buildings that let you buy more buildings. The first of those is the carpenter. It's one of those printed on the board, and one of the pink buildings is the carpenter. You'll see on the bottom of the carpenter tile is a picture of a brown building tile. Because that's what this lets you do. It lets you build the brown buildings, which are the wood buildings. This happens when and if you get a worker on there and it's resolved. When it's resolved, you have to make sure that you have the resources for the building that you want to buy. Those brown buildings are called the wood buildings because they all require wood to build. They all take two cubes, one wood and one other one. Usually food, but there's some that have other costs. A few that show a picture of a white cube, which means that you can use any cube you want, even another wood. When you build a new building, you pay the resources to the bank, and you place that building on the next empty spot on the road on the game board. In this case, you place it on that first empty spot after the six starter buildings and the two pre-printed on the board. You get the listed victory points and score those immediately. It's usually between like two and six points. Then you claim it as yours on the board by placing a wooden house of your color on it in the upper left corner. And now, not only did you get some victory points, But next round, there will be more and better choices for players to choose from for their actions. Because the wood buildings are an improvement on those starter buildings. For example, some of those tiles allow you to get two resources. So those pink buildings, honestly, they're a little junky. But they're all you have to start with. The wood buildings are sort of okay. If you want to graduate to even better buildings, let's look at the two wood buildings that let you buy even better buildings. One of the wood buildings is the mason. The mason lets you build the gray stone buildings. Ooh, nice stone buildings. And the lawyer lets you build the green residential buildings. This is important to know because until someone builds that mason or that lawyer, no one can build those gray or those green buildings. Let's talk about the gray and the green buildings. So to play gray buildings, you need the mason tile, which is a wood building. If the pink tiles are crappy, can I say crappy? Uh Uh-oh, I did. And the wood tiles are just sort of okay. The gray tiles are great. For example, some of the stone buildings allow players to get three cubes with just one worker. Now the lawyer, which is also a wood building, is a little bit different because with the lawyer you're going to build these houses residential buildings and nobody can play on these residential buildings all they do is give a little bonus for you if you have a worker on the lawyer and it successfully resolves you can build one of those green residences one of the green houses they cost one money and one cloth but with green buildings you don't place them on the next empty space down the road You take the green building and you build over another building. You're allowed to build over either the starter pink buildings or one of your own buildings that you have built. Typically players will build over the starter buildings first until they're gone and then build over their own. So these can't be played on by workers. What do they do? They do two different things. First of all, they increase your income by one each turn for as long as you keep that residence. So when you build your first residence, you'll now start earning three money a turn, while the other suckers will only get two. And if you build several of these residences, you can develop quite a cash advantage. But secondly, and perhaps most importantly, is that they are a requirement in order to build the powerful blue prestige buildings. The Blue Prestige Buildings simply just give you a huge chunk of victory points. Between 8 and 25 whopping victory points. And they give you this because they're really hard to build. To build a Blue Building, someone has to build the Architect, which is a stone building that lets you build more buildings. Architect has a symbol of a Blue Building over the top of a Green Building. And this is because in order to build the Blue Building, you must resolve a worker on the Architect, and you have to have a green building already built on the board. Then you have to have the resources. Prestige buildings take a lot of resources and all of them require gold. Gold is the hardest resource to acquire. There's not a lot of ways to get it. When you build them you replace one of your green buildings on the board, losing that extra income we talked about. And like those residences, no one places workers on those blue buildings. All they do is when you build them they give you a chunk of victory points and then they're just there. So building them is somewhat difficult, but with practice in this game it's possible to build two or even three of them by the end of the game. Keep in mind though, you'll need to have one of those green residence buildings for each blue building that you want to buy. Alright, so that might have been a bit confusing. Let's talk about that building tree again. With the starter buildings, you're going to go on the carpenter. The carpenter is what lets you build the brown wood buildings, which require wood. And in those wood buildings is sort of a fork. There's two different building buildings that you could buy. You could buy the mason, which is going to let you buy those gray stone buildings, which have the really nice things to get more resources and a lot of other good stuff. Or you could get the lawyer. And the lawyer is what lets you build those green residence houses, which build over other stuff and increase your income. And finally, once you get to the stone buildings, someone has to buy the architect to be able to build the blue buildings. And if you want to have a blue building, you have to have a green building on the board and a ton of resources, including gold. Got all that? Good. If you forget, you can always look at the icons on the bottom of the buildings to figure out which are those building buildings. Okay, so why the heck do you want to build these buildings again? There's two reasons. The first one is obvious because building a building immediately gives you victory points. But the second reason is not so obvious. By being the owner of a building, you get some advantages. Whenever any other player plays a worker in your building, you get one victory point. I always like to go, dink, and move myself up on the track. This is one of those things that's easy to forget along with paying the money for your worker. So really help each other remember especially if it's your building and someone goes into it. It's the responsibility of someone placing a worker in your building to remember to immediately give them a point. And if they don't remember, remember for them. Saying, you have to give me a dink! And this can add up to a lot of victory points. Especially for buildings that are placed early in the game. Now know that you don't get to yourself. Going in your own building does not score you a point, but being the owner of a building has another advantage. When you go into your own building, you never have to pay more than one money for placing your worker in your building. So even if the passing bridge is all the way full and players are supposed to pay four money for every worker that they play, if you have an empty building that is yours because it's marked with your colored house, you get to go on there and still only pay one. Remember that. It's a nice advantage to have, and it's a sneaky way to get into that prime position of being the last person to pass. Alright, we've looked at the buildings generally. Let's look at them more specifically, especially the ones that do more than just give you cubes. We'll start at the castle and work our way down with those six special buildings before the bridge. First, we have the gate. It has an hourglass symbol on it, and that hourglass represents that you get to wait. When this action is resolved, you get to move your worker into any empty space that's left on the board. Now, this isn't really the best spot because normally any spot that's any good has already been taken. But there are still some good uses for this. One of the best uses for this is to threaten that you're going to go to the castle. Then people get afraid to go to the castle because if you go there and beat them, you'll get the favor for them. There's a few other sneaky uses for it, but honestly, it doesn't get used too much. Next building is the trading post. This simply gives you three money. Doesn't seem so spectacular, but realize that there are very few places to get extra money, and money is power. And this is safe money. There's no way people can stop you from getting it and you get that money before the passing bridge comes up. So if you've run yourself broke, now you're gonna have a few extra bucks for that Provost fight that's upcoming. Here's a tip. Trading post is good. Go there early and often. Next, the Merchants Guild. This has a symbol of the Provost underneath it, because this gives you extra power in moving the Provost. When this is resolved, which happens before the passing bridge, You get to move, for free, the provost, forward or backward up to three spaces. You can leave it where it is, too, if you want to. This is a great, powerful position if you're trying to shoot for those buildings that are past the provost, or if you just want to kind of be a jerk and push it back and stop people from getting a lot of those buildings that are at the front of the line. It's an important square. Don't forget about that merchant's guild next is the jousting arena in the jousting arena you can buy a favor favors are represented on the board by that fleur-de-lis symbol so you buy them for one money and a cloth cube then you get one favor what's a favor now i'll talk about that later okay later next stables the stables are a way to improve your turn order the turn order will stay fixed in the random order that was determined at the beginning of the game until someone chooses to go in the stables. When you go in the stables, you're going to go on the lowest number. So there's a 1, 2, and 3 there. So you can go on the 1, and this means that you're going to go, get to go first in the next round. When this is resolved, wherever you are at in that turn order space on the board, you're going to pull your marker up, slide it to the top, and slide everyone else back. The same is true if we have people in the first, second, and third position. You're going to pull out, say, green was in the first position, blue was in the second position, and orange was in the third. Pull your turn order markers out. Whoever is still left would slide down, and those people would move to first, second, and third. It's very important to be up in the turn order. If you're always going last or close to last, you won't have, you'll have much worse choices on your turn and the final building of the six special buildings is the Inn. The Inn is a very interesting building. When you place it there you go on the left circle. When it's resolved you move over to the right side of the circle. This represents that you're in the Inn. While you're in the Inn, playing in two buildings only costs you one money no matter how many people have passed. It's quite a powerful ability especially in higher numbered player games with four or five players. This makes it very possible for you to get into that last position on the bridge. But on a downside, you now only have 5 workers to play on your turn. When I mention that all the worker pieces come off the board before each new fresh round, this is the one exception. The in person may stay there as long as they want to, as long as someone doesn't decide to go in there as well. So if someone new wants to go in there, they would go into the left spot, and when it would resolve, their piece would move over, kicking out whoever was in there. But if no one else chooses to go to the inn, you get to decide whether you want to stay there or leave when this action is resolved. Alright, so then we have the bridge, and then there are the pink buildings. Most of the pink buildings are just simple farms. And let me tell you, when I use the word farm, I know there's farms and quarries and forests and whatever, but I'm going to use the word term farm very generally. A farm is any of those tiles that gives you one or more resource cubes. So the, the pink tiles have four of those farms. And there's one of those carpenters, which lets you build wood buildings. The other pink building is a marketplace. The marketplace lets you sell one cube for four money. It's not really a great value, but if you're desperate for money, it's not terrible. Next, the two pre-printed buildings. First, there's a peddler. The peddler lets you buy a cube of your choice, not gold, for two money. Then there's another carpenter. Now, keep in mind, the order of the carpenters is important. If possible, there's those two carpenters to start the game. You want the first carpenter, the one that's closest to the bridge, because it's safer uh, from the provost. Plus, you're going to get to build first, meaning you're going to get first choice of those buildings. And your building will come first in the road, meaning you'll get more points from... ding, ding. Okay, so now the wood buildings, which, like I said, have to be built from someone going on the carpenter tile. These are going to come out in whatever order players buy them. There are several farms. The farms of the wood buildings give you two cubes. Then, like I talked about, there's the lawyer and the mason. The lawyer lets you buy the green residence buildings. The mason lets you buy the stone buildings. When that mason is built is very important. Then there are two buildings that are often underrated by beginning players to Kalis, And those are the Wood Peddler and the Wood Marketplace. Uh, Experienced players will often buy these two buildings first. Why? Because they allow you to use flexible resources, whatever resources you want. And also they're just worth more points. These are worth four VPs, and many of the others are only worth two. Now let's talk about the stone buildings. First, we have three stone farms. These are some of the most powerful buildings in the game, and I'll tell you why. Because when a worker goes on them and is resolved, that player gets three cubes. And you sort of get a tax, I suppose, of one cube of your choice. So whoever went on it will get three, and you'll get one. For example, one of the farms gives two food and a cloth. Whoever goes there will get those three cubes, and then you'll get to choose when that's resolved, whether you want a food or a cloth as your bonus sort of tax resource. So not only does it give you free resources for doing nothing, it's also going to give you free points when people go on that. So the three stone farms are the most popular. The next most popular is the church. It allows players to trade money for victory points, but the biggest reason it's the most popular is because it gives you a favor. What are favors? Okay, alright, I've got to tell you in a minute, I promise. Mm. Let's just say they're nice. Don't forget the architect. The architect is the stone building that lets you build the blue buildings. But remember, to build a blue building, you need one of those green houses that you got from the lawyer. And the other stone buildings are mostly various ways to get victory points or gold. Speaking of gold, about halfway down the board is the pre-printed gold mine. Don't forget about this guy. This is the easiest way to get gold in the game. If you can get it, go for it. The gold mine simply gives you one free gold. The only other ways are harder, such as some of the buildings make you exchange money or cubes to get gold. Why do you want gold? Well, you need gold to make those blue buildings. And if you don't manage to build a blue building, they're still worth three victory points at the end of the game. Gold is good. Remember that you buy the green buildings from the lawyer, which is a wood building, and they have to be built to replace older buildings. And the blue buildings replace the green buildings, and neither of those could be played on with your workers. The function of the green building is that they give you extra money, and they let you play the blue buildings. The blue buildings give you massive amounts of points and favors, sometimes multiple favors. And there are a few blue buildings that increase your income. What are favors? Alright, alright. So, the last thing you need to know about the rules of Kalos is favors. Let's talk about favors. There are four different ways to get favors in the game. You can buy one in the jousting arena for a cloth and a money. Or, you could contribute the most to the castle in a turn. You can get them for building those blue buildings. And, as rewards at the end of each round, the dungeon round, the walls round, and the tower round, players get favors depending on how much they have contributed to the castle. At the end of each round, you'll see by underneath the favor track, there's a key for bonuses and penalties for contributions to the castle. For example, in the dungeon round, any player who contributed two batches is going to get one favor. Any player who contributed zero will lose two victory points. If you contributed one, nothing happens. Nobody cares. At the end of the Walls round, any player who contributed two batches gets one favor. If you contributed three batches, you get two favors, and five batches gets three favors. And no contribution is a minus three victory point penalty. And the tower has similar rewards and penalties. Great, so you get these favors. What's a favor? Well, all right, I'm going to advise you. There's that really fancy favor track for your first game. Use the beginning rule as suggested in the rule book. As you heard, there's a lot of moving parts and a lot going on here. So this basic rule will simplify Kalos for your first game. And that simplification rule is that every time a player gets a favor, they simply get three victory points. That's it. There's definitely enough going on in this game that you're not going to miss the depth of those favors in your first game. I'm not going to leave you hanging, though, to hear more about those favors, especially if you're going to try to play the game online. You're going to need to know about them. For rules and advice about the favor track, stay tuned for the footnote section. But for your first game of Kalis, that's everything you need to know. Let's look at the big picture one more time. The goal of the game is to score the most victory points. There's really four ways to score points in this game. Two I've stressed multiple times building buildings, or by donating those batches to the castle. But there's also two minor ways, and that is getting other players to dink you by using your buildings, and from those favors. The game is played over three rounds, the dungeon walls and tower rounds. Each round will play three to six turns based on how fast that bailiff moves, or how fast that castle is built. In each turn, the steps are get your income, place your workers, Start following the road. We have the passing bridge where people can move the provost. Then we finish the road. Then the people in the castle decide how much they want to build. We'll award favors. And we move the bailiff. You check to see if the end of the round is triggered. And at the end of each round, players are given favors or penalties based on their contributions to that part of the castle. And then the next round begins. And at the end of the game, you get your favors for the tower segment. Then you do get some pity points if you have some leftover cubes and money. Though ideally, you really want to use those as donations to the castle or for building buildings. But if you still have some stuff left over, every four money that you have left over is worth one point. Every three cubes you have left over is worth one point, And every gold cube is worth three victory points. And at that point, whoever has the most points is the winner of the game! Part 3. The Hamster. How to win the game. How do you win Kalos? How do you win Kalos? I could talk about this probably for another hour and a half, but since I've been recording now for two hours, and my voice is getting a little bit scratchy, uh, this may be a topic for a more in-depth strategy show later on. But for now, let me try to give you the basics. Kalos, of course, is a worker placement game. And as I've mentioned before, worker placement games are all about prioritization. But what makes Kalis the king of worker placement games is all of those factors that you have to consider when making the decision of where to place that first and second and third worker. So what should you go for first? Oh, there's a lot of choices. Well, you can't run out of money. Money is power. And When you finish a turn, I highly recommend having at least two money left when you pass out of a turn. The reason you want two money is because you get paid two more money at the beginning of the turn, and the next turn you'll be able to play at least four workers. But that isn't even accounting for having extra spending money for moving the provost. If you want to do that, then you're going to need more. But money alone can't win you this game. Money gives you power in the gameplay. But cubes win you the game. Getting cubes must be a high priority. You want to transfer those cubes to points from building buildings or donating to the castle. But you can't fall behind too much in the turn order for most of the game, or you're probably going to lose, unless you effectively use that inn, that building that lets you go for free after people have passed. Or maybe you have lots more money than anybody else, and then you can just keep playing and have more workers in play than anyone else. Then you have to decide when do you get resources and when do you go for building buildings or when do you have to go to be that first one in the castle. This is all a balancing act. You're trying to keep all these balls in the air. You have to keep enough money. You have to keep getting cubes. You have to maintain a decent standing and player order and you have to pick the right time to go for points either through going for the building or going to the castle. How do you know when to do what? This is why you can play this game hundreds of times and not get bored. It depends on what's going on in the game, but just keep in mind that all of those factors you need to consider. One thing to think about is, when should you play your workers more to the front of the line where the buildings are at risk, and when should you play them more towards the back where they're more safe? Well, it's important to continually shift your focus forward in taking buildings. You can't get stuck in a rut in those safe pink buildings, just taking one cube a turn. Once those wood buildings are built, you got to get to those, so you get two cubes a turn. And when those stone buildings are built, you have to go for those. But you always must be aware of the provost. If you're going to play toward the front, you have to know there's a risk that you're not going to get those actions. But by not playing towards the front, you can never win the game. So how do you deal with that? There are a few ways to protect yourself, from the provost. You can go for that power position that I talked about. The power position is being the last man on the passing bridge. This gives you the final say. It's a common move even to play a worker at the end of a round that you don't even want on a junky space. You don't have to use the ability there. It is an option. And you can just play workers on the board to stall for time to try to get that last spot on the passing bridge. And being in that inn or using the buildings that you built for only one money can help you get into that power position as well. Also, don't go alone to the front of the line. If other players play towards the front, then that could be a clue that you could be safe to play there too because you're going to work together to make sure the provost stays forward. And it's especially nice to be one behind the player with that merchant's guild power, you know, the guy who moves the provost, or be behind the guy who's got lots of money to spend. Don't play a bunch of workers toward the front by yourself. I'll tell you what's gonna happen. All the other players will move the provost back, you won't get any of them, and then you'll complain about how mean they are and what a stupid game this is. Whose fault is it? You gotta have friends at the front of the line or a whole sack of cash. If you have a ton of money, and nobody else has any, then you can probably play a bunch toward the front, and no one be able to stop you. That is good. Especially if you've got that merchant's guild power. So be aware of who has money. And don't expect a player who's broke who has no money to help you move the provost. One last thing about the provost. Use him! If you can stop other players from getting actions, do it! It's an important part of the game. But sometimes you do need to look at the game situation and make sure it's a good use of your money. Sometimes you'll spend three money to move the provost three back only to have all the other players move him back where he was spending one money apiece. So you have to sort of read the other players looking at their current money, looking at their workers on the board and their intentions. Which brings me to be aware of the other player's situation and intentions. One of the great things about Kalus is there's nothing hidden. There's no hidden information. All the money people have and what resources have is public information. And that's very important when you're playing this game because you have to be looking at that and trying to read what other players intend to do based on the current resources that they have. For example, how much money do they have? Where do they want the provost to be? Where might they play their next worker based on where they're at in the game? Do they want to build in the castle? If they do, how many batches could they possibly build? And so on and so on. Ah, Ryan, cut it out. What are you talking about? You've lost me. All right, get a hold of yourself. Focus. Remember, there's two major ways to get points. Donating to the castle and building buildings. Focusing on one of those two paths to victory is going to give you a strategy. Builder guy or castle guy? You want to be the builder guy? Okay, awesome. Let's talk about how to follow a building strategy. Well, you want to build buildings. Build them early and often. Get as many of your buildings on the board as soon as possible before that gold mine, which is kind of the halfway point on the board. Cuz the earlier your building is, the more people will have to use it. If you get four of the first five buildings on the board, the other players will be forced to dink you like crazy. It'll be like ding 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 ding. Like that. Try to build those stone farm buildings and build them as early as possible. The stone farms, these three buildings I'm talking about are the stone buildings that give you cube. They give the person who takes the action three cubes and you one cube. A stone farm built before that gold mine spot on the board is very powerful indeed. Because not only is it going to give you a ton of dink points, but a ton of free cubes. Because everybody's going to want to go there for those three delicious cubes. And if they don't want to go there, well, then that's fine. That's their problem. You have no problem going there and taking the three cubes, right? If you manage to get two of those stone farm buildings down before the gold mine, you're going to be very hard to stop in this game. No, the problem is, is among experienced players, everybody knows everyone wants to build those stone farms. So expect a fight to get to that mason And to get the provost ahead of the mason so you get to resolve the build stone building action. And even just to get that stone cube. But this is what is awesome about Kalos. Alright, let's look at a different approach. You don't want to be castle guy. Okay, great. Here's what you have to do. Focus on getting a mess of cubes. Get so many that no one even wants to challenge you for getting those favors when you go to the castle. When you go to the castle, make sure you win the favor. Do that by going there first and intimidating people out of going there. Or jump in at late when no one seems to want to go there. Or the one guy who is going there only has one batch to donate. Also, really be aware of the approaching end of the game rounds, especially when that last turn of the game will occur, either by somebody having enough to fill the tower segment or that approaching bailiff. If you're the castle guy, you really want to go first on that last turn of the game, So you don't end the game with all these nearly useless cubes. You want to end the game contributing all those cubes and dumping them into the castle. Because that last section can fill up faster than you might think. This game is easily lost on the last turn of the game. Or not realizing that it was going to be the last turn of the game. If I had a nickel for every time I lost this game on the last turn, I'd be up to at least a buck by now. Prepare for utilizing all your resources by the end of the game. And lastly... I'd like to apply the how-to-play-Swiss-Army-Knife-of-game strategy. Do what the other players aren't doing. If everybody else goes for the quick buildings, then focus on the castle. And if everybody is busy fighting over the castle, go for quick buildings. If you're competing for the same thing with too many other players, you will fail. Okay, I think that that is enough Maybe I can do a future full advanced strategy podcast on the game if there's enough interest, but that's certainly enough to get you started. Besides, half the joy is seeing how much better you can get on the game by discovering the strategies on your own. But for now, I wish you the best of luck as you dive into the pool of gaming goodness that is (music) Kalos. four footnotes and musings let's get to the vegetable we have one big chunky vegetable we have to deal with it's like this eggplant and that's the favors we have to talk about favors because in the first game using that rule that every time you get a favor you get three points is really a good idea but after that first game you have to dig this favor rule in there because it really adds a lot more depth and strategy to the game How favors work is that you can see that box on the board. And it's four favor tracks that go horizontally. Anytime you get a favor, you get to choose one of those four different special bonus favor tracks that you want to take. You get that special bonus, and every time I take that favor again, I get to go higher up on that favor track, and the favors get better and better. So there's four favor choices that you can get from the king. They are either victory points money, free cubes, or building buildings. For example, say I want to focus on the victory point favor track. I get a favor say from donating to the castle. I decide to take victory points so I take one of my markers and I move it to the right one space on the favor track. That says I get one victory point. Now the next time I get a favor I can move that up again. And now this favor gives me two victory points. And by the end of the game, each time I get a favor, I can get five victory points. And the money and the cube tracks work similarly. They give you more money or better cubes. The money track starts at three, and then the next one you get four, five, six, seven. The cube track, the first base is a food, then it's a wood or a steel. The next one is a cloth. The last space is a gold cube. And you don't have to do just one track. In fact, a lot of times you won't. I might use my first favor to get one victory point my second favor to get three money, and then maybe the next time I take the two victory points, and so on. The final track is a bit different. It's the building track. You know, normally in this game, you have to wait for players to build that mason or the lawyer or the architect to get the specific buildings that you want. And then you have to get a worker on that building and get it resolved. It's a lot of work. The favor track lets you avoid all that mess, and it lets you build buildings at a discount, and it's potentially the most powerful track. The first spot on the building track is empty because this track is so powerful. The second spot lets you build a wood building immediately. So when you win this favor, you'd move your marker up on the track, and at that point you could buy a building. Plus, when you build from the favor track, you get a discount. The wood building favor track lets you pay without the wood. So say I got a favor from the jousting arena, and then I got the blank spot as the first spot on the favor track. The next turn, I contributed to the castle, so I got another favor, and I saved an extra food, so I move up on the favor track. Now I can build a wood building minus the wood, so I'll pay just one food cube to build this farm. Hooray! But that's when it gets really good. The third spot is to build stone buildings, which can really give you the jump on the other players fighting for that mason to build the stone farm. And the fourth spot lets you build green residences, and the last spot lets you build blue buildings. The building track is good. Some important rules about the favorite track. First, there are barriers for the favors based on what round of the game we're in. You can't cross the barrier until the next round. For example, the victory point favor track. You can go to the 1 and the 2, but you can't go past it to the three until we enter the walls round of the game. It doesn't stop you from taking that favor. If you still want to take that favor, you would just get two points and not be able to move your marker forward. When you advance on a track and take a favor, you can take any favor from the list. The only track you really want to do this on would be the building track. For example, I might be on the third spot of the building track. I take the favor again. The marker advances to the lawyer one that lets me build a residence. I don't want to build a residence. I can still use it to advance my marker and take the stone building favor instead. Next, if you earn multiple favors in the same phase, you have to take those favors from different tracks. This might happen if at end of round scoring, sometimes you get two or three favors. If this happens, I can't take points and then points again. I have to take maybe points and then money. Although an important exception to this is that donating the most to the castle in a turn and the round scoring are different phases. So if you donated the most to the castle and take the points favor, then it gets to end of round scoring because the round ended and you got more favors, then you could take that points track once again. The final thing you need to know about favors is that during those end of round scoring, players get these favors almost simultaneously the players will choose what favors they want in turn order. And this can be important, especially if players are building those buildings, because someone might build up the building another player was shooting for. It's important to have a little bit of guidance about these favors. And so I'll give you a little bit of strategy on how to work with those. The favors really add to the strategy of the game. The big change, of course, is that players are not dependent on the building tiles on the board, to build buildings anymore. Whereas in the learning game, somebody has to build that mason to get the game progressing. This is not true with the favor track. No one even really needs to build the mason. If you feel overwhelmed by these four different favor tracks, let me narrow it down for you. Take the money favor track only when necessary and you need money. Never take the cube favor track. It's just not good enough. I can honestly say I've seen the game played 200 times Never have I seen a player who has advanced to the end of the cube favor track win the game. There'll probably be listeners who point this out that they've done it, but it's just not good enough. So this leaves the two best tracks in the game. Tracks that are worth focusing your strategy on. And those are the victory point track and the building track. As I mentioned, the building track is very powerful. Let's talk about what a building track strategy would look like. You should concentrate on getting cubes to win favors from the castle, so that you can get favors so that you're prepared to build those stone farms with a favor as soon as the walls round starts, so you can try to get that first stone farm. Remember, you can't cross that barrier, which is the third favor, until we get to the second round of the game. Do not bother building the building buildings, the mason, the lawyer, the architect. You don't need them. In fact, it's best for you if there aren't any of those out there. Because then you're you're able to build those buildings and the other people can't. Try to push those buildings as far back as you can. And when you get to the end of the game, set up with getting a lawyer so that you can at least build one of those blue buildings with one of your last favors at the end of the game. The opposite strategy would be the victory point track strategy. This ties in with the building guy strategy that I mentioned earlier. You want to build lots of buildings early. Be sure to build the mason and the lawyer early in the game so that you can get access to the gray and green buildings. And somewhere in the mid-game, you're going to have to build that architect so you have access to the blue buildings. Really try to get one of those stone farms built the hard way through an onboard mason. And you probably won't get too many favors in the early game. You'll probably get them mostly in the mid to late game and climb that victory point track. Get to that point where you're going to score five victory points for each favor because that is pretty strong. Don't count out that to win you're probably going to have to build one of those blue buildings as well. So make sure you have that architect within reach and you've got at least one of those green buildings down on the board. This favor track thing goes back to that old adage don't do the same thing that everyone else is doing. If everyone chooses to go for that building track get favor strategy Going for the rush lots of buildings early, get favors late, and climb the victory point track later could definitely be the winning strategy in the game. So to sum up Kayla's strategy, two of the major strategy paths are get lots of favors and get buildings from the favor track, or build lots of buildings the traditional way and climb the victory point track. But don't feel like I've ruined this game for you. Within each of these strategies, as well as combinations of the two, there are endless things to discover and explore the fantastic game of Calus. Let's get to those other little bitty vegetables now that I may have missed. When you're building in the castle, you can build past the segment for a round. For example, there's only six spaces in that dungeon section. If I go on build to the castle, say five of those six spaces have been filled up, I can build more than one and keep going into the walls section if I'd like. This is not going to count for end of round scoring, for looking at what people have contributed to the dungeon section, but it does count when you're looking at for that turn, who contributed the most to the castle. Though this doesn't apply for the third round of the game. The towers, there are 14 sections there, and they can fill up really fast. And once they're gone, they are gone. You can't build extra ones. I talked about ding, 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 the little points that you get when another player uses your building. You get that immediately when someone lays the worker on your building. It has nothing to do with the provost. So even if the provost comes by and they already gave you a point and got nothing from their worker... You still already got that point. I talked about those fantastic stone farms that give someone three cubes and give you one cube, a tax cube, if you own it. If you use your own stone farm, you also don't get the bonus cube as the tax. You just get the three cubes. You don't get four. Pay attention to the setup. With the number of players, uh, changes how much money people get. Players get... Cubes to start, I believe it's two food and one wood. And if you choose to play with two players, there's a few minor changes to the game, so check the rules. The last interesting bit is there is no tiebreaker in the game. You would think it would be cubes that weren't exchanged into points if you had remaining cubes, but it's not. The rules clearly state there is no tiebreaker, and the players that are tied share the victory. Huzzah! And one last plain suggestion, as I mentioned with some of these other games that have changing turn orders, such as Age of Empires. There's not clockwise turns in Kalos. The turn order is a really integral mechanic because you're fighting. That's almost one of the resources in the game. You're fighting for turn order position. But as a result, it can get confusing whose turn it is. So I definitely suggest having a player caller. Someone say blue, red. This avoids confusion. People going on the wrong turn because they think it's clockwise, or it also helps to prevent zone outs. Let's get to the musings for this episode. Oh, these longer episodes, I gotta keep the musings a little more brief. I apologize, dear listeners. This is getting a bit on the long side, but I do have some thoughts still for you. First, there is a premium limited edition for Kalis, it's more expensive, it's harder to find. It has this different board. It has this money that people just really like. I really don't like the limited edition. I think the board is dark. I think it's hard to read. They changed how the road looks on the board. And I don't think you realize, I mean, you compare this to chess. You know, people always complain that, you know, you play with a chess player and they say, oh, I've got this Simpsons chess set. Well, you don't know what's the bishop and. What's the pawn? Like, all right, I'm going to move Homer Simpson. What's Homer Simpson? Nobody knows. Can't we just play with a regular chess set? And that's kind of how I feel with this new limited edition. When you've played the game with a standard board for so long. To try to read the game in a different format, it makes it a little difficult, and and I I don't really think it's worth it. Uh, I I didn't really enjoy the art, I apologize to who produced and designed that that version, but it's just just not my taste. I I like the original. Maybe we could have just dressed up the original a bit more. Kept the standard board, but just kinda made a 2.0 version of it a bit more. Now I'll talk about the different player counts that that you could use with Kalos. You can play Kalos with 2, 3, 4, or 5. Each one is a completely different experience. I personally prefer three or four. I know there are many people who prefer Kalis with just two. The interesting thing is that each of these player counts is like a completely different experience. I personally don't like two. The reasons I don't like two is because you don't get that provost interaction like you do with three or four. That's probably the number one reason. If someone moves it back to, then you move it forward to, and you just really cancel each other out. Another reason I don't like with 2 is it's way too easy to get favors, and people just get a billion favors, and it just doesn't feel like the full, true, k experience to me. That and I just prefer multiplayer games to two-player games. The other extreme is five-player games. I really don't recommend, if you're just learning the game, to play with five. You know, if you want to intro this at game night... Start with four. I think with five, it's gonna, with people who don't know what they're doing. It's going to drag on too long. Five lends to you know it's this really tight game, but with five players, it tends to get just a little bit more chaotic because that provost can move anywhere. You're not really sure, and someone could pass really early, and that would just throw a monkey wrench into everybody's plans. It's just a much more unpredictable game, which some people don't really like. I particularly find it rather interesting. Because it definitely changes the game. It's just a little bit wackier. The inn, as you imagine, becomes much more important. Also, building early buildings is much more important. Since you just have more people playing workers on the board, the competition, you're only going to have like one or two good plays with five players. Which just makes it a real unique challenge. But, to be honest, not the best way to play the game. Kalis is fantastic with both three or four. And even these two variations play very differently. There's not a lot of really great games that play really well with three. And Kalis really shines with three, which is a very unusual thing for a board game. So for that reason, it's it's probably gives it another reason why you should have this game on your shelf. Next let's talk about the Provost and Provost Diplomacy. In the rules of Kalis, it's explicitly states that you may discuss who's going to move the provost you can't exchange anything you can't say i'm going to give you a wood cube to move the provost too but part of the game might be something like if i move it back one will you move it back one or if i move it forward two will you at least move it forward one and that can be i think can really add to the game as long as it doesn't get bogged down and and take too long. You know, there adds in a little bit of trash talking in there. People say, oh, you don't want to do that. Don't listen to him. You know, you get some of that in there. It's quite fun. Now, there are some people who really would prefer none of this in their game. They say that, you know, everything in Kalis is open. So you should simply look at the board, look at the resources everyone has, and make the move that is the best for you and if I look at you and I think if I move it one back, you'll move it one back, can be an interesting way to play the game. Now my problem with that is I don't want to waste a dollar moving it one back thinking that he'll move it one back if I can't communicate to him more clearly that I'm moving it one back because I want you to move it one back. But I guess I need to count on the fact that you should look at the board and see and just know that that's why I moved it back. And the fault in this theory is that sometimes you're playing with new people and they can't really read that game that well. But then you look at, all right, where is communication between players and manipulation of other players. That is a really fine line that could be crossed in this game, which can be similar to other games as I discussed in Puerto Rico. And I think that is what some players really don't like about that. You know, a player might be really convincing to say, all right, I'll move it back one. I need you to move back two because you have lots of money because we need to get Jimbo here because he's ahead in victory points. And Jimbo is just sitting over there stewing like, why are you convincing him to... Go after me. It's just not fair. And then you have another ethical issue if, say, this player that's being asked to move the provost back to is far out of the game, is back 20 or 30 points, and they're then influencing the end result of the game which is, I suppose, another argument for why some of the players enjoy this game with just two. But for me, I think that that's a part of the hazard of of playing board games. You have to deal with a bit of that negotiation, a bit of that kingmaking. And I don't know, if I'm playing a face-to-face game, I really enjoy that banter, you know, back and forth. I think it adds to the experience, though I recognize that for some, some it doesn't. Even if you play online, I, I like a little bit of uh, typing in the message boards about. All right, I'll I'll do this if you do this, and, and don't do that, and you know just a little bit of banter. There's some people who even even turn up their nose at that. You know they'll say no typing, we just play. Listen here, Snagglepuss, I'll type if I want to type, all right? But for me, my opinion is is I encourage it. I think I think the diplomacy and a little bit of negotiation is part of the game. The fine line is you need to be careful about when you cross that line between negotiation and manipulation. Speaking of players who might be really far out of the game, let's talk about the steep learning curve of this game. This game has a steep learning curve, which can make it a challenge to get to the table with people who are sort of at that same spot in the learning curve. The ideal situation is if you can learn it together with a small group and play it over and over again so everyone can sort of get better together. This game has what I'm gonna call sort of the Scrabble dictionary effect, you know? Um, You really like Scrabble, so then you go out and you buy that Scrabble dictionary and you study all the two-letter words and suddenly nobody wants to play with you anymore. So this is a game ideally you wanna try to learn together. Another option, say you're in a situation where you don't think anyone will play Kalos with you 10 or 20 times. Well, in that case, I really recommend you go check out BSW or Brett Spielwelt. Brett Spielwelt is, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, is the best real-time online gaming website. You get sort of a Java program. And you open it up and you can play, I think they have 30 or 40 different German board games. And Kalis is one of those games. And you don't play against AI, you, you play against actual people. I know a lot of people are intimidated by BSW. Don't be. If, if you go about it the right way, there's really a lot of nice people on there. Sure, you get the occasional jerk who, who won't play with new players or whatnot, but most people there are just really welcoming and willing to teach new people how to use the system. So if you want to give BSW a try, and I think you should, because for one reason, they have this fabulous adaptation of Kalos, and it's a great way to play Kalos. What you need to do is go to their website. I'm going to place a link on the guild to that website. Or you can just Google search Brett Spielwelt, B-R-E-T-T-S-P-I-E-L-W-E-L-T. And they have a nice introduction page there. Look for the help section and under that there's an introduction page that you can click on that will really help you get started. What you need to do is you need to register at that site with a username and password. Then what you're going to want to do is download what's called the client. The client is just a little program that you put on your computer so that you can run the program more easily and play games quicker. You can just play straight from the site. But it works better if you download this small program onto your desktop. And let me stress, it's really important that you register. You can join in and not register. But when you do that, people are very nervous about playing with you because more often than not, these players are just in there messing around and they will quit halfway through a game, which with Kalis is particularly annoying. So some people won't even play unless you have a registered name there on the site. Alright, so once you've got the client and you've registered a name, it only takes a second to get registered and and then you're good to go. You boot up the program, put your name in, and as soon as you boot up the program, it says welcome. And in that first pop-up box, there's a yellow box that says chat tutor. There are actually people on this program who are assigned to help people who just start into this system and want to learn how to use it. And so you hit that button and someone will say, Hi, I'm Hans. Can I teach you how to play board games? And he'll teach you how to use the system and how to get into the different games and how to join games. And you're pretty much good to go. You can try to figure it out on your own. I, I think I, I learned how to use this system before they had this tutor system. And you know, basically I would just go into these rooms and say, I'm new here. Can you help me with this? Or can you show me how to play this game? And generally, I've found that a lot of people say, oh, yeah, you you know, you need to just hit the join box. And they were all very welcoming when I learned how to use this software program, which really is not that complicated. I really think it's very user-friendly, especially the game interfaces. A lot of them are intuitive, and you can figure out without anybody's help. There may be a couple buttons that you might have to learn what those buttons are. But for the most part, you'll pick it up pretty quick. And once you get into it, you'll just realize it's a good community, there's a lot of great people, a lot of great games, especially if you really wanted to dig into a game like Kalos. Make sure to be polite. Uh, just just be nice. Say thank you. Say hello to people. You know, it drives me nuts. These people who play online and they never type in the box. You, know, you don't have to worry. It's a German gaming site, but nearly everyone on there will chat to you in English. Just say, like I said, that you're new. Can you be patient? As I learn the, you know, learn the interface is my first time playing. And a lot of times, especially if you've played the game before, say I've played in real life, but I haven't played on BSW. You know, they'll be very welcoming. Say, you know, sit right in. Though I do recommend really having a general understanding of the game before you join a game. You know, you don't want to get into a power grid game if you've never played power grid before. It's really hard to teach someone how to play, especially a complex game like that, by typing. You know, it would just take forever. So make sure you have at least a cursory knowledge of the games that you you join in there on BSW. You know, I know there are a lot of great play-by-email type sites, but there's some games, worker placement games especially, that you would never want to play by email. I mean, even something like Amon Ray, it takes forever. There's so many little things in between but Kalis just works beautifully online. In fact, it almost might be actually a little better online than in real life because there's not a ton of human interaction during the game. It's one of those, you know, stare at the board and you know decide what to do it cuts the play time in about half you know you can play a four-player game in about an hour and I'm not saying a real-life game of Kalis isn't a great experience it is a great experience but just flat-out logistically playing the game it works with all the money you can see everybody's cubes and everything really nicely it cleans up all the pieces for you it just goes really smoothly if I go on BSW Kalis is probably the game I'm looking to play if you try to jump into a game, you may talk to the people there about you know how many players you want. Like I said, there's some that definitely have a preference for two. Others, such as myself, that only want to play three or four player games. What else is there? Well, there's some other games that we've covered on the How to Play podcast. There's Puerto Rico. There's Teach You. There's Stone Age. And some other popular games that a lot of people love. Dominion is the most popular game probably on the site. Also, Carcassonne gets a lot of play. And a host of other great games. So give it a shot. Especially if you really want to dig into a game like I said. There are also deeper levels to this uh, BSW, if you really want to get into it. Uh, you know, you, you obtain a profile, and the more games you play, you get levels. So, you know, first you're a level three, and then a level four, and so on. There's there's guilds there. I'm part of the English Town Guild, which is a guild for all the English-speaking people, like myself. And each guild has, like, a land, and you, you can get a house if you want. and You can ignore that whole part if that sounds a little too geeky for you, which it kind of is. But if you want to get into that part of it, it, that's there too. If you haven't before, I really recommend you check out BSW. In fact, we're going to be really featuring BSW. I'm going to be using it for the Calus Celebration! A Calibration! June 6th, 2010. Catch Kalos Fever! Yes, that's right. This is my holiday that I just made up. June 6, 2010 is International Kalos Day. And I'd like as many people to play a game of Kalos as possible. And one of the best ways to do that is hopefully a ton of us can get together there on BSW and play together. I will be on BSW at that date at noon and perhaps earlier noon Eastern Time for as long as my wife will let me stay on. Brett Spielfeld. I'm going to start a petition of people who will play Kalos on June 6, 2010, either on Brett Spielveld or within their own game group. And my goal is to get 100 people to play Kalis on June 6, 2010. Spread the word. Tell your friends. Kalis Fever. It's crossing the nation. So that transitions me nicely into our groveling phase of the show. Please help support the show. Please It's easy, it's fun to do, and it'll make you feel good about yourself. Join the guild. Donate money to the How to Play podcast. How you do that is from my website, howtoplaypodcast.com. There's a PayPal button. It's very easy to do. Write a review or rate the show on iTunes. Tell some friends. Post about it on BoardGameGeek. Speaking of BoardGameGeek, there's a geek list having uh, different podcasts face off against each other. And So if you can support the show from that, there's a link to that on the guild saying we've been challenged. So go to that and uh, support the show to help us get as far in that podcast tournament as possible. Finally, 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 acknowledgements. There's a lot of people I need to say thank you to for this podcast. First, the guild members. 148 of you. All fantastic. Here's a bunch of them selected at random. Darren, Jesse, Nikos, Dev... Tony, Daniel, Bradford, Richard, Alexander, Guy, Troy, could be Guy, he's from Canada, Chris, Frank, Montag, Mole, Mike, Klaus, Tanks, Tanks a lot, that's clever, Gregory, Adam, John, Diligent, Glenn, ooh, hello, Lonnie and Maldia from my game group, hi! Dale, Chad, and there's like 80 more, so we'll get to them later. Who else? People have donated money, including Mike, Rob, and Brian. I gotta thank Brad Keane. Brad first really got me interested in this when uh, we put together an interview. He interviewed me for a segment of the Dice Tower, and from there I was just like, you know, this is fun. This is fun. I want to do something else. So thank you, Brad. Brings me to the Dice Tower. Thanks to the Dice Tower for putting on my segments to help promote the show. Thank you to Mark Johnson for promoting the show on your show. Thanks to Scott Nicholson for all your countless hours of efforts and inspiration in how to make instruction fun. I've been doing this hooray thing a lot in in podcasts, and I was thinking, oh, yeah, that can be kind of like my shtick. And then I was thinking, doesn't Scott do that all the time? Oh, I totally ripped that off from Nicholson. Sorry, Scott. I'll stop that. And I'm going to move to huzzah now. Huzzah! He might say huzzah, too. Uh, I'll have to come up with my own word. Supply suggestions. To Luke Morris uh, for his inspiration and his especially goofy, happy, happy board game love-in. To Charlie Eastman, a low wooden cubist, for his support of this show. For my wife, who's understanding and, and allowing me to put the time into this podcast. Can't thank her enough. And to the Nickel City Gamers, my Buffalo meetup group. Great group of people to play games with. And that's it. I'm done. I'm not talking anymore. I promise. Oh, last thing. I gotta do the the thing, the thing I say at the end. But for now, I want to say thank you so much for listening. This has been Ryan Sturm for the How to Play podcast.